Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast for episode number 90. This is Ryan Williams, Stories from the Influencer Economy. It's a laboratory for people, creators, and entrepreneurs to talk about the creativity around the ideas they've launched to the world. Quick thank you to everyone who's pre-ordered my book, The Influencer Economy. Coming out June 14th, go to InfluencerEconomyBook.com for more information about buying it. And excited to announce I'm going on a tour. I'm going to be visiting San Francisco, Washington, D.C., New York City, and my hometown of Los Angeles. Starting June 14th throughout July, I'll be hitting those four cities. If you'd like to learn more about my tour, go to the events page at InfluencerEconomy.com. Thank you all so much for helping and supporting me along the way. So fired up for this week's episode. I'm back in the lab. We are talking to Keith Bullock. He is a former All-Pro defensive player for the Tennessee Titans of the National Football League. He went to undergrad at Syracuse and grew up in a foster home, so has some incredible, inspiring stories about persevering and becoming a leader on the football field. And currently, Keith is a tech entrepreneur in media. He's pivoted his career after football, so he's gone on to be an entrepreneur, but he's been a winner and even was Walter Payton Man uh, Player of the Year for the Tennessee Titans, which means he gives back to the community more than other players in the NFL and specifically around foster homes and the environment that he grew up with. I'm excited to be back in the lab. It's the name of my new garage. That's the podcast studio. Be hammering out a bunch more podcasts coming out this month. Additionally, would love to see you on the tour stops in San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, in Washington, D.C. Go to InfluencerEconomy.com for more info. And give Keith some love on Twitter. His account is KBull32. So K-B-U-L-L-3-2 on Twitter at KBull23. Hit him up. Let him know you love the show from the lab. Um, so I have, a, I have a bone to pick with you. You lived in Nashville. You've been there for over 10 years and you've never been to a Vanderbilt football game. Nah, never, man. Never. Never uh never even interested in going to the game on Saturday. Why is that? As a loyal Vanderbilt alum, I know we're not the best team ever in football. What's the story? Um when I played, I really just really had no interest and now um on Saturdays I actually travel. Um you know, I travel to to work and you know soccer games with my kids and stuff like that but i think i definitely um within the next few years i'll be going to my first vandy football game i've been to a vandy basketball game though yeah with me and my friends <laughs> Word, I'm we got down. you on the record um, i'm down so you're uh you, you played in in the nfl for like 10 plus years how many years total oh when you now go to a party or you're meeting someone for coffee and they ask you what you're up to, what you and what do you do? Like, how, what do you tell them? Ah, man, you know it just depends, man. It just depends on who who it is. If it's honestly, sometimes I'll say whatever I want. Um, sometimes, um, if we're in a more formal setting, I guess I'll get into some of the businesses and companies that I'm involved in. Um, but at the at the end of the day. The real answer is just enjoying life. Um, you know, I feel that is one of the most common questions asked in my five, um, my five going on six years being retired is what do you do now? And um, after 11 year NFL career, uh, really 
Like, you don't really have to feel obligated to do anything. You know, uh, if you were smart with your money um, and you you made, like, the right um, contacts and, you know, you were put surrounded yourself around the right people while you were playing, I think um, it's time to just, at that point, fall back and just see what everything life has to bring. Because, um, look... Like, if you're Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Charles Woodson, Ray Lewis, those guys, yeah, ESPN's going to be calling right away, um, you know, and and that's great if that's what you want to do. I, I have interest in media, but at the same time, um, I have interest in business. So, um, you know, that's probably why I chose to go back to go to George Washington and get my MBA instead of to going to the NFL, you know, whatever it's called, <laughs> the NFL Broadcasting School. Not to say that there's anything wrong with that, and I'm sure I'll eventually go, but I just looked at it like that's not going anywhere. Um, let's see what I can do in, in the business world and see at least get up to speed with my peers who had been in it for 10-plus years already. And so when you look back at your career, like you're now a business person, you work in the tech industry, and you're surrounded by teammates, and you got to have a great team to succeed and to thrive. What are, what are some moments, like you talk to a lot of former players and they say they miss the locker room and the camaraderie of being with their buddies and their team. What are some things about football that you miss and being with your teammates, like just on the field? Um, I, I like, I honestly, if anything, with my teammates on the field, I miss the performance. Um, I miss being in those situations where, um, you know, like when it's like third and six and you need to stop, you know what I'm saying? And someone has to to make a play or, you know, when the game is on the line because, um, you know, I feel like that's the kind of student I was. I'm going to wait to the 24th hour to do my paper, you know what I mean? But we're going to get it done. And like once I'm done, I reread it and proofread it and hand it in feel great it's just like when you make that play man or one of your teammates make the play and it's funny that you say about teamwork because i feel like anything else man you need like a great team to win a nfl or a sports championship but to be successful in life um you know after football i'm realizing and i know that you need a great team also yeah i have a chapter in the book it's called uh, the jay-z effect you have to book your own gigs in business afterwards, especially because we're all startups and we're doing our own mm -hmm. thing. And you can't rely on people to give you opportunities. You have to create those opportunities yourself. And then through that, you need to have your Kanye West, your Beyonce, and your team to collaborate. And football, though, you're, you're training on your own. I mean, you're really doing a lot of stuff. Like, how did you keep motivated to, to have the eye on the prize that, like, in the off-season workouts – you were going to keep pushing and you were going to be training when other people were you know, going to be lazy. Well, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think it's just I knew what I wanted to be. I wanted to be one of the best. You know, I wanted to be at one of the best at the position that I played. And, what and position in order that it was, um, you know, in outside linebacker when I got to the NFL, you know, um, at Syracuse. Um, honest, I was, I went to Syracuse as a safety and there were guys I came in, there was a wide receiver that was a senior, um, named Marvin Harrison, who just got inducted to the NFL. And I saw his work ethic as a senior. And then there was Donovan Darius to Bucky Jones, um, Donovan McNabb, you know, and there's a bunch of guys that I didn't name, um, 
that I saw a work ethic. And then when I get to the NFL, you see guys like Steve McNair, Eddie George, Brad Hopkins, Frank Wycheck, and they're all humble. You know what I mean? I'm um, playing in Nashville. It's such a, a small town, um, but it's a great city. You know, they, they love their, their football. They love their two sports teams, um, the Titans and the Preds. You know what I'm saying? And, um, you know, the guys that we played, that I played with, they were superstars, but you would never know it. So, um they those names that I mentioned, they kind of taught me how to be a professional and go about my business as um, a professional football player. And I'll let you pass that you didn't mention the Vanderbilt uh, program in football or <laughs> baseball or basketball. Baseball um, is all right. Yo, baseball. I still haven't been to a Vandy. You know what? I'm here now. I think I might go to a Vandy baseball game this spring. <laughs> They're cheap. They're like five dollars a ticket. <laughs> I'm sneaking in, bro. Yeah, right. <laughs> Watch through the the left field hole in the wall. Um, nice. So, what what were some characteristics that you felt like as a leader you had on the field? Because I I re read a lot of articles doing research on you, and people they said that you were a leader, but you weren't necessarily the guy like Javon Curse or someone who got tons of attention. But you were the backbone of the defense. So, how did you inspire people on the field? Um, I think more so through my play, man. I played really hard. Um. You know, uh, I definitely was a guy that had I had my teammates back. I, I honestly, at the end of the day, I just played hard, and I just knew that um, I wanted to be the best player on the football field. Like I, like honestly, and you know, excuse my friends, my mentality is um, I wanted to be the baddest motherfucker on the football field. You know, like, um, and it's like the Samuel L. Jackson effect, the Pulp Fiction when the diner, you know, reach into that bag and just give me my wallet. How do you know which one is my wallet? You know, it says, you know, you got the rest. If you're a Pulp Fiction Tarantino fan. But, um, yeah, man, I just, I just threw that. Um, I, I think once, um, having that mentality and then once Steve and Eddie and all the guys, like you said, Javon and Samari Roll, Brad, like all these guys that I look to um, maybe for my source of like, you know, leadership or gone and I'm the only one around, um, you know, yeah, Jeff, Jeff pretty much said, look, you know, this team is going to go instead in the direction that you go in. And instead of having a bad attitude, which I probably was leaning towards after losing so many games after coming in a winner, um, you know, I just demanded more from my teammates. And I'm sure there are some teammates that I had that didn't understand at the time and might have thought I was just an asshole. But look, um, you know, I, I was told from within the building, you know, I'm playing way too hard to accept these guys not playing up to their capabilities. So, you know, sometimes you got to, you know, get in people's face to get their attention. Would you rather be respected than liked as a teammate? Yeah, I definitely would rather be respected than liked. I don't care if you like me. You know, we're not at the end of the day. Um, it's not Pop Warner or high school or even college for that matter. Um, it's a professional. It's a business. You know, the owners make billions of dollars. So at the end of the day, we're doing a job. And if we don't do our job, we're, they're going to have our ass out of here and get somebody in here to do our job. You know, so um yeah, man, just respect the fact that I care enough that I want you to do your job better so um, us as a unit, as a team, can be successful. And I would always tell, like, the young guys, like, look, if we win, everybody eats. You know, everybody's going to get paid from a championship team. So, look, 
You want to be a football player, be a football player. Then you can get your face on TV, be in the Super Bowl, and chase tail all you want. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so then you got to get everyone to buy in that winning is the most important thing. For sure. Um, For sure. Because So you know, one thing you did when you were a football player is you won the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, uh, which goes to someone who helps and contributes off the field. Yeah. Uh, can you just explain people why you won the award and what you did? Yeah, well, um, I was a foster, I went into foster care at the age of 12. Um, you know, my mom, my step, real brief, my stepdad passed away and left my mom and dad. And then my mom dealt with her own problems. And I was staying with a friend supposed to be for a couple of weeks and it turned into six years. And, you know, um, that was a, it was a blessing in disguise because at that point I got an opportunity to um, experience some of the things that normal kids experience, like, you know, gifts on Christmas, gifts on your birthdays, like meals every night, like someone home to tell you to do your home, like normal stuff that, you know, um, a lot of time I went unsupervised. And um, I always said once I got in a position to give back, um, I would. And then I created the Keith Bullock Believe and Achieve Foundation, which, um, you know, we did a book bag drive in September. We did something for the kids um, over Halloween. We'll take them to the zoo, go trick or treating, um, turkey drive for um, Thanksgiving, Christmas giveaway, and then spring break. We'd do something for spring break. So it was like a program I created um, to kind of give you know, something to these kids during the holidays. Let them know that someone is thinking of them and teach them that it's not um, always about receiving. It's also giving. And, um, yeah, man, that was something that I enjoyed doing. And so when you, you said you lived in uh, – someone adopted you. You lived there six years. And she was a, she was a British woman, right? Yeah. So what was that like? Because you were living in New York City, and then you went to live in, like, the suburbs with someone – who's, you know, spoke like Mary Poppins. Yeah, no, nah, I was, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily adopted. I chose to be a foster care. You know, I chose to be like a foster kid. And then um, it, it was interesting because I always would be over um, their house anyway because her son Daniel was, um, you know, my one of my best friends. And I would always be over there playing video games and stuff. And it'd be different when you can just leave. And then now you're li living under her roof. I'm coming from one culture. She's from another culture. Um, I'm black. <laughs> she's white. They're, they're, you know, living with a white family so it was a it was it was totally different and um it was something i had to get used to uh but at the same time it, it was it was my life man i think after about a year probably like after like seventh eighth grade i was over it um everybody knew i lived with the welches and it just worked out but we definitely had our you know ups and downs of you know, misunderstandings, not communicating or just not, you know, agreeing with everything. But, um, you know, Miss Welch and Adam and Danny, they were great. Where'd you go after eighth grade to live? No, I lived with them. I lived with them. I'm just saying um, about eighth grade is when, like, I kind of stopped worrying about it because my friends from the old neighborhood would come over and, like, Miss Welter answered the phone and be like, yo, who's that white lady answering the, answering the door? Or, you know, who's the British? Yo, who's the English lady? You know what I'm saying? So those type de things dealing with as a 12, 13-year-old, you know, you don't really know how to deal with them. You don't really want to explain them. But, yo, at the end of the day, that's your life. And you just live to deal with learn to deal with. It. And so when you were in foster care, you know, what's that like? Because I've 
you know, I so I, I was depressed a lot in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I have the same mentality where it's like now that I'm becoming more successful, I want to help other people that were uh, have gone through cause depression, something no one really understands completely. Right. So now that you're giving back and helping foster kids, like what are some things you can relate to that they go through? Um, just uh, feeling like that the situation they're in is in their fault, is, is their fault or not understanding why their mom or dad or someone left them or feeling like they don't, they're not wanted, um, or a feeling of, look, knowing who your real family is, but you're not allowed to go live with them. You know what I mean? Um, because of whatever the state um, provisions are, uh, it's a, it's a bunch of feelings. Um, I, that's why, uh, my Believe in the Chief Foundation, I centered it around times where, you know, as a foster kid, I wasn't, you know, getting too much at first. You know what I mean? Where, you know, book bags, I got that, of course. But once I got into foster care, my situation was great. You know what I mean? Um, I had, it's like a community, it takes a community or village to raise a, whatever, you know that saying. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I had, there are other families and friends that helped out along the way as well. So, um, you know, Miss Welch is who I lived with and that great family, but there are several other families that um, definitely helped make my life pretty peachy from the age of 12 to 18. And that's probably what allowed me to focus on getting a scholarship. Uh, your mic is wobbling a little bit, like the cord. Right. Okay. So, I don't know. If you could try to hold it steady, sorry yeah. um, to interrupt, but I'll edit this out. So, um, yeah, so then you got a scholarship to go to Syracuse, and where'd you go to high school and play football? Uh, I played at Clarkstown North, right out. It's uh, about 20 miles outside of New York City, small suburb um, outside of Manhattan. Um you know, nothing, nothing big, nothing to write home about. Either you you move out of Rockland after college, or you move back. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm not. Yeah, me and my friends haven't moved back. And so, what uh, what was it like trying to get a scholarship for football? And do you feel like you were auditioning for different schools, and then they were like judging you, and then you had to perform? Nah, I, mean, I can only imagine. Nah, it wasn't even like that. I just know that at the age of 12, when I went into foster care, I had to make a decision. Um, are you going to age out at 18 or 21? And aging out is when, you know, you're out of the state foster care system and um, the home that you're in, they can, you know, they no longer get state funding. So not that I felt as if Miss Welch would kick me out. She definitely wouldn't have, but... Um, I knew that at the age of eight, by the age of 18, I had to make something happen. And um, just playing sports in about 10th grade, a scout from NC State came through the school. And then I saw that as my ticket and opportunity. So I kind of like cut, cut whatever nonsense out that I was doing as a ninth grader, 10th grader, and just kind of focused in. And you mentioned in an article I read that you like a lot of people that get out of foster care think that maybe they'll get a minimum wage job when they graduate. What What did you mean when you said that? Well, I mean, um, you know, once you get out of the system, you probably have a GED. Um, if you if you're lucky, like like not every side, not every story is the blind side where you go live with a with a nice family. A lot of foster kids they bounce around from house to house. Um, and a lot of these people that become foster parents usually just take the money to get an extra check, you know, to get the 300, 300, $400 that comes with taking in a foster kid. And they don't, there's not much love or any of that surrounding you. And you're not led in a direction. 
direction. So I feel as if um, the community I was in, um, I learned a lot. Uh, I remember in 10th grade, everyone taking, we taking our PSATs and I didn't even know what PSATs were and kids getting their scores back in the halls crying because we're one of those schools, I guess, that, you know, was big on academics. Everyone had to go like these kids were trying to go to Ivy League schools in like the ninth grade. And I wasn't even up on that. So, you know, so I say I was put in a good situation, you know, um, where a lot of kids are really dealt a bad hand. And so when you went on to Syracuse, how many years did you go there? Did you for all four years and play? Yeah, I played all four years. I redshirted my first year, which was great because I got to really experience what, you know, uh, I would practice during the week and then I was off on the weekend. So my best friends live, they went to Albany. So I would take a bus down there sometimes and go to Oswego, like little different SUNY schools that were around. Um, I got to experience college, um, kind of, you know. Um, and then, yeah, I started playing. My junior, I mean, my redshirt, year I played at safety and then I played linebacker the next three years. And so for people that don't know, redshirt means you sit the first year out. Yeah. So like redshirt means, I'm sorry. So when you redshirt, when a student athlete goes and they redshirt, um, they practice with the team, but they sit a year out. So they don't participate in any games. They might dress, but they don't participate in any games. And honestly, um, what that does, I like, I felt it was great because I got acclimated to being in college. Like um, I was taking 15 credits. So I got to get used to, you know, my workload. And then, like I said, we didn't travel with the teams. So I had time on the weekend, well, time on more time than anybody else, more time than the guys that travel to like kind of, you know, pay attention to my studies. Like, honestly, my first semester in school, um, I got like a 3.3, you know, so I think that that helped. But then the second semester is when it went downhill for whatever reason. It's crazy. And then what 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 was some of the peaks at Syracuse? Did you play in bowl games? Yeah, man. Uh, we went to a bowl game every year. So my first year, uh, we went. We I think we were Big East champs. We went to um, the the Gator Bowl. Then we went to the Orange Bowl. We went to the Fiesta Bowl. We went to like the Music City Bowl. Like so, every year I played, we went to a bowl game. Um, we're I think two or three times Big East champs. It, I think the problem was with our school, um, with our team, was we would always lose that game when we we're ranked like number eight. Or something like that. We'd always lose that game um, late in November, right before you know oh, the yeah. siding polls come out, and then like we go from like I remember one year we went from like six to you know sixteen, and then we played in like uh, the, um, the Music City Bowl or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Like we're about to go to like uh, BCS, and then so it's that crazy in college football. I definitely enjoyed it though. Like one game can swing your whole season. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, it's so crazy. Uh, these these games are such big money makers, man. And, you know, it's as we get, we get there and you get bowl gifts, you'll get like a, a Seiko watch. <laughs> you'll get like um, three polos, um, you know, maybe a bag that says, you know, what? Home Depot, Music City Bowl. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. So what was, what's it like when you graduate and you get – when were you drafted? Well, I, me personally, I was drafted in the first round. So, um, you know, look, my agent, I met my agent before um, you know, the the bowl game. And look, I it was, decided. It was kosher. It was legal. You know, you could talk. 
Yeah, we could talk. And I, you know, I decided I was going to go. And I don't even know how that works. I just I don't think that you can sign with an agent while you're playing. I think that's the violation. You can't sign. You can't take money. These agents come at you, man. They're like, yo, you sign with us. We'll give you $100 million in a Bentley. Like, no, not $100 million, but like $100,000 line of credit in a Bentley. You know, um, we'll give you. And look. As a 22-year-old, that's like, all right, you know what I mean? You don't really know much about the business. And I signed with my agent, Gary Wishard, because he talked more about the plan for me to get drafted. You know, he's like, you need to do this, 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 and this, and then that'll give me the opportunity to do my job. You know, it made more sense. You understand what I'm saying? And, um, yeah, man, came out to sunny California, and the rest was history. I got drafted in the first round. And so you went to play with the Titans. Mm-hmm. And when you look back now, and football and college sports have really changed. There's a billion dollar industries, and the the market value of these players, you know, is a lot more than a scholarship, in my opinion. You know, it's like forty thousand dollars free ride a year is amazing. It's a you know a great gift, but in the end, it's like once you graduate, you don't necessarily have any money. And what do you think about like the transition? Do you think if college athletes in the big time sports got paid something it would help their transition you know into the professional world well i think a lot can be done in that situation whereas okay syracuse if if my scholarship they're like well you get a hundred and twenty thousand dollars scholarship you know say it's thirty thousand for four years it's like all right that's paying for these classes and courses that i'm not even they're still pointing like I remember the thing, like most of the kids on the basketball team, their major was African-American studies. Like, where are you going to go? What are you going to do with that? You know, um, I majored in psychology and the way I picked that was because, all right, um, I had two years to pick my major. And by the time came, I was like, I have the most credits in this and I like psychology. So I'm going to get a psychology degree. So. I think if the NCAA really cared, they could really cater courses or structure at least a handful of accredited courses for student athletes. Because even if these student athletes don't go on to be um, NBA players or anything like that, they can definitely be the guys that help manage their money or help their best friend, you know, in situations where they have to outsource and and get robbed and get hosed. I don't know. I think as far as the money goes, athletes getting paid, look, it should be look upon graduation. If you graduate and you are a four year athlete, you get the the amount of your scholarship, you know, something like that. I mean, like maybe they don't get it while they're playing. But if you can bring billions of dollars to your school from a bowl game or NCAA championship and all that and. You want to say you're compensating by a meal plan and all these different things. If if that sits well with you and that makes sense with you for you, then that's fine, I guess. Yeah, I, it's complicated because it's a lot of money at the top. Yeah, and there may I mean it's like the in any business, in any like, come on, man, anywhere that you're making billions, and the problem is that like. We can't really put our mind around how much billions are. So we're just like, it's just a number. I mean, it's just a word to us, a word that, you know, represents a number that none of us will ever see. So it's kind of, it might be, they probably are laughing at us like, oh, we have billions. We could really do this. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's crazy. Like they have such leverage 
Yeah. I mean, they're totally laughing. They're like, wow, we have a great system here. Let's not rock yeah, the boat. Sure. Let's not I'm rock not the mad boat. at them. Look, whatever, man. Like, whatever works for you. Like, you know. But what, uh, what about your transition? What was your first job after NFL? My first job? That, that I got paid for. Yeah, did you have like what kind of work? Did I was you like do? work for the radio station. Okay, you know I mean? because that's what they always, you know, once a once you retire as an athlete, they push you, you know, to or you push yourself to be on television or radio. And yeah, I think that was uh, that was my first my first job, right, for Sirius XM. Actually, that was my first paid gig. So why do some people like? There's this great. Or it's sad, but it's really interesting documentary from 30 for 30 on ESPN about athletes and they graduate and then they sign a big deal and they make millions of dollars. And then a couple years later, they're broke. You know, why do some people slip through the tracks? Do you think it's because they don't have the infrastructure and the support? Um, well, the infrastructure and the support turns into the leeches and the hanger honors. You know what I mean? Like if you come from a situation where, you know, even if you come from a middle class, a, a middle, a middle class situation where, you know, your parents had to scratch and claw for everything. And now you're coming into all this money and you got a brother with an addiction or you got your mom with an addiction. It's not like, you know, um, obviously it's it's one of those things that um you you hear more about with you know african american athletes just because they come from more poverty stricken you know that's their way out that's our way out you know what i mean i'm one of that was my way out but um if you never come into that and your support system like you said um becomes the hanger oners and the leechers who who's there to support you? You know what I mean? Who's there to support you because you're they're pulling you down with the free fall and they were already down there. So they're pulling you down. It's really tough. Um you have to be strong minded. You kinda have to like um set set um parameters uh for your family. And you know, the way I did it, man, um I, I don't I don't really know. I think my family, I have my brothers, don't really ask me for anything. Yeah. No one really asked me for anything, and I was able to take care of people how I felt saw fit as it, it came about. But I know, um, you know, a lot of cases where guys just feel obligated, like, look, giving their mom $20,000 a month, and then she's still asking for money, and you're paying her bills, you know, so look in in the new in the new mansion so i would say that's close to about 40,000 a month and you got to pay your stuff too it's excessive mhm mm and that that money's coming in from what 22 to about 24 25 26 27 and when your body's in peak condition and you you're 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 marketable at that point people steal from you like i have a lot of friends that got stolen from you know um you know, and some of it, it's it's really their fault to, you know, not to be any kind of way because you got to know what's up. You can't give people power of attorney over your over your assets, you know, where they where you think you own something and then you turn around um, and you were thought you were paying the mortgage on something and you were just putting money in their pocket, you know. But at the end of the day, if the NCAA would, you know, do some research and maybe 
start some courses or, you know, have courses that are taught by former athletes, not just, you know, men athletes, women athletes, because now obviously with um, professional women's sports and just the transition, I'm sure from for women, I already know that have been, you know, four year soccer players. And yeah, I'm majoring in this and you know, shit. Now they're done with school, and it was like, oh damn, I really wasn't, <laughs> I really wasn't paying attention. Now I got this job. Like, that's yeah, crazy, man. So then, when you were, you retired, did you get like depressed? You hear about all these players that just they have this like longing for the game, and they have trouble moving on because like Michael Jordan came back out of retirement, and a lot of players they like they have that 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 it's like been your life forever. You know, were you were you depressed at all? Like, how did you move on? Yeah, no, nah, honestly, I wasn't depressed, man. Um, I kind of I knew I wanted to go back to school, so I kind of tried to figure out how I was gonna get back to school. Um, I just had my 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 second daughter. You know what I mean? But really, I would be to be one hundred percent honest. Um, I was in New York. You know, I had just played with the Giants. I'm from New York. Um. Yeah, man, you'll always be like like Keith Bullock. Like I would like I would be at the sports bar that year I retired with my with my boys doing what they used to what they would do when I were when I was playing and people like, "Man, you need to get out there. You need to get out there. You need to oh, why aren't you playing?" You know what I mean? And look, at the end of the day, um everybody wants to continue playing, but the game always has a way to let you know when your time is up. You know what I mean? Look, Peyton Manning. Yeah, look, can he come back? Who knows? But, you know, the game has either father time or the people upstairs in the front office is going to let you know um, when your time is up. So um, with that, I would say, man, I, I hung out a lot. I, I definitely like hung out a lot, um, partied. And then it just got, you know, it's New York. So you're still, I, you still got the VIP access and, you know, the plug or whatever. Um, and then I just remember... <laughs> just remember man just being out and just like looking around and i'm like shit is stupid like this is what the, these people are always here like i've been in the nfl i was in the nfl for 11 years i'm not playing this year um i'm looking around and every year i come home like this is what these people are doing all year so it just kind of gave me perspective like this is not what i want to be around and i'm just like all right i'm going to school <laughs> and then i went to school so you can, you can only have so much free bottle service at clubs. Yeah, man. And then, like, you know, like, at the end of the day, no one in there could do anything for me. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to do anything for anyone else. I'm just, I guess that was my, you know, that was how I was filling that void of not playing. Because when you're playing, um, you win and then you go out. You know what I mean? And I wouldn't say I was out all the time, but I was out enough for someone that, was wasn't playing and you know like you know the scene kind of kind of still trying to stay on the scene when the scene you should just let the scene go just let you know it what go. I mean? yeah just let it go man. <laughs> move on right it's like you graduate from college and you want to hang yeah out yeah and, yeah you know you graduate from college and you want to hang around that one more semester you get those and people like, that like pass out on the fraternity house couch yeah, and it's like dude it's time to go bro pack you, it up yeah move on move on <laughs> right. the game has passed you by yeah uh but you bring up an interesting point because like, you know, I'm my late 30s and I still feel like my best is yet to come. Yeah. Where if you're an athlete, a lot of people peak, like you're saying, at 27. Yeah. And then 
what do you do afterwards? Because you're so young at that point, you have no idea. Like life is still pretty fresh, you know, right. as a professional. Right. So for well, you, you had like pretty. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I wanted you to finish. Yeah. So the uh, but you had a, a plan afterwards. You said your agent helped you, and you thought more longer term. You know, what was that like to actually like what what phase did football have in your life? Was it? I look at it like if I had an opinion about you, I'd say it's almost like a platform opportunity. Like you make some money, you do really well for yourself, you do something you really care about, you love, but now you have a platform and you always have that as part of your your background and it's super interesting. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, that's kind of how you have to look at it at a certain point. I had a great veteran in my room, um, Eddie Robinson. He was like a 13, 12, 11-year vet when I was a rookie. You know what I mean? I got to play with him for two years, and he his locker was right next to mine, and he told me a lot of like valuable things that he might not have thought I was listening to, but I kind of like definitely listened to him. You know, him being a grown man, like he was in his 30s, and I was – and just getting into my 20s. Um, yeah, I just feel I always looked at I, as if I always expanded further than just being an athlete. You know, um, even when we used to have to do our little community things for the Titans, they used to want us to wear our jerseys. I was like, I want to be, they see me every Sunday with my jersey on. You know, let them see, the me and the community relations lady, we used to fight about this all the time. But um, I just knew. And the NFL offers different courses throughout the offseason. You just have to take advantage of them. So I went to a course at Stanford, Wharton, um, Harvard, you know, all these different, you know, crash business courses for about three weeks. Take that time out of my offseason, you know, between um, training and South Beach and, <laughs> you know, all the other you can, great you can places. Do it all. You can balance it all. Yeah, absolutely. And. Yeah, that's just how I knew, man. Uh, I just knew, and I wasn't—I was—I wasn't a big spender. Being in here in Nashville was cool. I wasn't a big spender. I had—I had the same townhouse from that I bought when I, you know, first got in the league in New Jersey. The house that I'm in now is the house that I bought when I got my big contract. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I, and I just knew that I wanted to be involved in the business world somehow. And uh, so, what, what did you when you had the radio gig? What what have you done now in the last couple of years? Because you've launched a company. Yeah. And uh, we just hung out at South by Southwest with Don and Chris, who are your your business partners. Yeah. And you've been doing some technology products. Like, yeah. How how did you pivot into that world? Um. Well, um, the transition with Don and Chris, man. Don and I used to. Uh, do things when I was playing, you know, Don worked for, um, I believe a company carrot or whoever he worked for at the time. And <laughs> like, he just had, um, Don just has these connections and he's like, yo, um, do you want to do this interview for CSI, NBC sports? I'm like, all right, no doubt. So he throw stuff like that to me. And, and then, um, you know, after when I was retired, uh, he, Chris, myself, and um, Alec just had a conversation. And I was like, I'll try it. I didn't really know anything about, you know, what they did. But I was in school and we just had um, we just had a whole semester or a week of a long course on branding and marketing. And it tied right, what into, right into what Don and Chris were speaking about. And Sean Merriman was in my class, and I feel as if he did a great job his whole career of branding himself, you know, his whole Lights Out brand. And he still does a good job. But 
I saw what Chris and um, Don were speaking about as far as um, what they wanted to do with transition. And, you know, I feel all of our networks come together. Obviously, we're still young and we're still um, ironing things out. But I think we're, we're heading in the right direction for sure. And so when you have uh, your own company now, what's that like running it versus playing football? Because you don't have a um, coach. <laughs> you know what? Like, honestly, man, like with transition. So I have another company um, that I just, I'm just an investor in. And it's Extension PR. And it's similar. But they just work with brands. You know, um, Ducati is one of our um, brands. Um, you know, Silver Oak is one of our brands. StubHub. Yeah, StubHub. So they just mess with, they just deal with brands. Whereas I like with Don and Chris wanted to do because they wanted to work with individuals as well as brands, as well as companies. You know, they don't want to just limit themselves. And um, what I'm finding in the first two years, I wish there was more I can do. You know, um, like you say, it's a team. And like, it's like right now, we're like the 83 Bears, where it's like, look, we're just giving the ball to Don right now. He's Walter Payton. And Chris is, you know, Chris is doing his thing. He's out there like Willie Galt, you know what I mean? And we're just waiting for the defense to step up. But, um, need Buddy Ryan to come in. Yeah, not nah, like, but I, it, it's just, it's just an, it's just interesting, you know, because, um, you know, you never, you, everyone always wants to pull, pull their own weight, you know what I mean? And you, you just want to get in there and do more. But what I do realize and what you have to realize is you got to stay in your lane. You know, if there's nothing for you to really do, you just got to stay in your lane and be ready for when the team calls you. So, um, it's definitely interesting than working with, um, in a locker room amongst um, football players. Um, I know I bring a different dynamic and a different attitude towards business. I'm sure I can get their, their blood pumping. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Fire them up. Yeah, you know, but... Um, I'll run through that wall for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it, it's cool, man, and it's, and it's, it's great. And I def we definitely have some big things on the horizon. I love that. Okay, so I got a, I got a couple minutes left to just ask you some rapid-fire questions. So we know sure. we learn more about you. What's your favorite barbecue spot in Nashville? My favorite barbecue spot is Martin's Barbecue. Where's that? Um, there's one in, I go to the one in Nolansville, but there's also one downtown. But I'll also give you another one. There's Edley's is not that bad also. It's newer. So I would say Martin's first because it's more um, old school, but um, Edley's is pretty good too. And what's your, what's your workout routine now post-football? Uh, my workout routine now is um, 13 minutes on the EFX. I try and keep my the elliptical machine, you know, when your feet just go, and I try and keep my heart rate at about 150, 155. And then I'll do, like, two chest exercises, two shoulders exercises, my arms, and some abs. Like, I'm not in there longer than an hour. How many times a week? Try two. I try two, but I would like to get three, but I definitely try and get two. How many hours a night do you sleep? Wow. Like six, maybe, because I'll stay up late, and then the kids got to get up. So I like I like the my time at night. So maybe five between. I would say between four and six. <laughs> I'm curious, just because you're a peak athlete. So now right. I'm so curious about like how you keep keep on your edge. Um, well, like my days, my days aren't too vigorous, you know, like if I'm moving around, like traveling, then I'll get more sleep. Um, cause I don't have to do things with the kids, but that's what I'm saying. Like, um, I'll catch a nap here at some point today. <laughs> uh, what about you take a nap during the day? Like an hour, nothing crazy. Most days? 
Five days that I work out, yeah, I'll definitely shut down for about 45 minutes. Just because your, your body needs it? Yeah, just let me get my rest it's before like my meditating. kids come home. Yeah. <laughs> and what about your uh, your video, your video game? You play any? Yeah, games? for sure. What do you play? Call well, the last, the last thing I was playing was Battlefront, um, the Star Wars one. Oh, I was playing Tomb Raider also, but it's been a few months since I've played video games. I'm a 2K player more so basketball but um of course call of duty i'm a i'm a shooter guy but i also like um the tomb raider game was all right it was better i remember it being better as a kid but it was just it was all right i used to work at this company machinima.com and i know machinima yeah we put people put video games like call of duty we played it for like a month straight nonstop when black ops came out yeah, um, so I, I told you I worked with the Fantasy Sports Network in Toronto. So they have, um, we had like the e-games, I think that's what they're called. And yeah. um, all these guys are like, you know, they're, they're huge oh, yeah. gamers. That, yeah. What's that? The the war, like with the different worlds, um, Warcraft, they play that. Minecraft. Minecraft, all that stuff is crazy. And they, they talk about the tournaments in Tokyo. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It's wild. And then final question is uh, when you... Or you wake up in the morning, what are the first five things you do? I wake up in the morning, I go to the bathroom, then I go and I probably make my kids breakfast and I get their lunches together. Um, I have some tea and then I turn on Mike and Mike. <laughs> Mike and Mike? You watch that show? Yeah. I mean, it, it's something to put on. Okay. And then do you drink coffee? Ah, nah, I'm a tea drinker. Tea, green tea, green or black. I'm more into like the the real tea, where like you have to like it just you put it in the you know you the, the official. Yeah, 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 for sure. Okay, cool, man. Sure. Well, thanks so much for coming on. You got a great story. Hey, man, I appreciate you. I appreciate you having me. Hey, everyone! Thanks for listening to this episode of the Lab. Excited to have a big announcement right now. My new podcast name is no longer going to be, it's no longer The Influencer Economy. The book is done. It's published. You can buy it at InfluencerEconomyBook.com. But the show has evolved into a laboratory. So I'm calling this show, drumroll, please, Rhino Lab, R-Y-N-O-L-A-B. It's a nickname I had growing up, Rhino, short for Ryan, if you caught that. You would know that um, my my show has really changed in format, very little, but my show has changed a lot in who I'm going to book. And I want to make this podcast as accessible to anyone and everyone in the world to take it global so people listening in Mumbai, India, to Sahara, Africa, and I'm serious, to Nashville, Tennessee, can listen and learn from creative people and entrepreneurs talking in a laboratory with one another. And so with Keith, he's not necessarily the influencer from YouTube or the podcaster that I, I talk to and have those types of conversations have, have dominated this, this series. Is, and I'm looking at this actually as a series. Like the last two and a half years have been an amazing big series around YouTubers, podcasters, self-published authors, technologists, founders of startups, technology entrepreneurs, and all these great guests that I've had that have inspired me and and the community of people who've told me through emails that, hey, we loved your episode on depression with Rand Fishkin. So, for example, the laboratory, we can talk more about depression with the creative people and people that have emailed me and said, hey, you know, I love that episode you did with Flula, the crazy YouTuber. And it's like, okay, well, 
let's find the essence of what made Flula such a great guest. And he's in the book, so he has a chapter on capturing lightning in a bottle. But moreover, I'm going underneath the surface of a laboratory, throwing on my gloves, my, my beakers are in hand, and my, I'm wearing my, uh, my white jacket. And I want to explore how creative people come up and launch to share their ideas with the world in helps that everyone listening to the show can understand better how to thrive in the digital age. So the Influencer Economy series is coming to a close, but the lab is wide open. And I'd love to go to one podcast a week, maybe making it twice a week, if not three times a week. So this is going to be big, and I'm going to take the show on the road for my book tour. And in the fall, the Rhino Lab will also be going on the road to colleges and speaking to business programs, to businesses giving trainings, as well as to talking to tech entrepreneurs at, at their own incubators and accelerators. So all that makes sense as it comes along out of my mouth. I'm talking in my laboratory, which is my garage, with my wife in the doorway with our four-week-old daughter. So I think that's a sign I, I got to go. Thanks again for listening to The Lab. Big shout out to Catherine, my wife, Libby, who's four weeks old and very much getting her neck support right now. So she's getting a little stronger. Thanks for listening. Bye. Mm-hmm.